Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for a Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Ian Williams, led by Paul Monnier. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Ian discusses his latest book, Disorientation and its connection to the rest of his work. Paul and Ian also discuss genre, its issues, and its limitations. Additionally, their conversation investigates the states of avoidance, evasiveness, and vulnerability while writing. They explore the ways and difficulties of connecting with different communities during COVID-19. The interview concludes with what's next for Ian Williams. Paul Monnier is currently an English PhD candidate at the University of Calgary. Paul's poetry explores the spaces between experimental form and subject representation, and his work has been published in Node Magazine, Filling Station Magazine, and Anti-Langorias Project, the UBC Okanagan Humanities Graduate Students Anthology. Paul's Sherk-funded dissertation, Poetic Refractions, navigates Calgary's queer history through experimental poetry, exploring how a temporal crossings weave between past, present, and a poetics of a queer futurity. Ian Williams is the author of six books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. His novel, Reproduction, won the Scotia Killer Prize and was published in Canada, the US, the UK, and Italy. His poetry won Raymond Suster Award and was shortlisted for Griffin Poetry Prize. His latest book, Disorientation considers the impact of racial encounters on ordinary people. His short story collection, Not Anyone's Anything, won the Daniel Tagli Literary Award for the best first collection of short fiction in Canada. He is a trustee for the Griffin Poetry Prize. I hope you enjoy this episode. everybody. My name is Paul Meunier. I work for the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing, and I am a graduate student at the University of Calgary. And I am so incredibly honored and thrilled to be joined today by Ian Williams. Hello, Ian. Hi, Paul. I'm happy to speak with you today. 
Thank you so much for joining uh, Tea House for our Tea House Talks podcast series. You were top of mind when we were <laughs> thinking about people to invite, and we instantly thought about you and your important work. Mm. And great project you're doing over there. Really, really good work. Thank you. Thank you. Quick plug, check out Tea House Talks podcast for all of those listeners. Um, yeah, a lot of incredible conversations taking place. Really important time. You know, Tea House does a lot of work to engage folks from different communities through, you know, writerly circles, activist circles, academic circles, arguably all those circles overlap. And I know that you've had a really busy <laughs> few years, uh, Ian, with reproduction and word problems and disorientation. And I was just wondering if I could start by asking you a quick question on, on how it's been for you. I mean, you're busy. Yeah, you know, when people say like, uh, you know, capitalism can't continue its growth and we can't just continue unlimited growth, right? I, I feel like similarly, like the continued acceleration for a career, for anybody's career, not just mine, is not really possible. At some point, we brush up against the limits of the human, right? Like you can be in only X number of places at a number at a time. But this morning I was going through my my event stock. And for this year, uh, it's 107 pages of stuff, right, that I've done uh, this year. And that's just like event stuff. So it's been wild. But isn't it the thing that I hoped for when I was 20, right? So <laughs> you get what you hope for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that books take a long time to percolate mm. and work our way into them and then eventually, you know, help them see the light of day. And so I know that a lot of these things are probably things that you've been working through for quite a long time. And I know, in fact, even with um, you have an acknowledgement note to the to I believe it was your editor who knew that disorientation was a long time coming. <laughs> right, right. I thought I would write it sort of in my mid 40s or late 40s and at a different point. There's certain like other artistic projects that I wanted to clear out, right? You know, kind of like do this inventory and clear the ideas in your head before you get to the next one. But yeah, there was a kind of urgency that that foregrounded this one, right? That um, accelerated its, its development. But yeah, I think in my 20s, I was concerned with certain things in my 30s. And now in my early 40s, what I'm working on right now, I can't see the end of it, right? I can't see how it's going to be resolved, both like artistically and um, like personally. <laughs> and so... Um, that's an exciting place to be, right? Because that means that there's a reason to write the next project, the next book. Um, and it's not just, you know, a display and an exercise in like pyrotechnics or something. There's actually a reason. Um, yeah, a human reason for this. Well, and congratulations on all of the incredible praise and the accolades that have come with your 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 recent books, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. I don't want to be a downer. I'm just kind of curious, you know, what it was like for you to to help, you know, books like Word Problems. I, I think about Word Problems and I think about disorientation being Black in the world coming out, you know, right at the pandemic. And of course, in disorientation, you talk about all of these overlapping sort of crises, right? I mean, not sort of explicit right. <laughs> crises, you know, of heightened racism and the need, the need for anti-racist action and, and the traumas and the, har the harms that come with that. There's also this pandemic and it's all happening simultaneously. And then it's happening simultaneous with the book coming out itself. And so can you speak a little bit to what, I don't know, what, it, what has it been like for you, maybe on that human level, mm -hmm. seeing all of these pieces come together at the same time, maybe expediting the book, like you yeah. say, but yeah. 
Yeah, that's the word, expediting. You know, normally when you're working through like some kind of personal issue in, in an artistic project, you come to the end of the project and you can kind of resolve whatever that personal thing was, right? Um, because it's partly dependent on your own, you know, your own abilities and your own willingness to work and all of those things. But when there's something global that's happening and it's beyond your control, then the problem persists even as the work goes out into the world. So, um, you know, no single writer can write to the end of racism or write to the end of the pandemic. And so um, what happens is that the book is out in the world and the issues have as they will, kind of morphed uh, slightly. And the book is this kind of like a drop in the ocean here. And you can see kind of uh, the issues moving around the book and, and through the book and all of that. So it's, they're still very much alive and present. When I was writing it, you know, there was a pandemic starting to take hold in, I was in Vancouver at the time. And of course, the necessary justice movements that began in the US and then spread globally. And there was also climate change, right? And on the West Coast, there were these fires raging. And, you know, I had to keep my my windows shut because there's smoke in Vancouver. Like, it was very real, not just this kind of um, conceptual, you know, apocalypse that's going to happen sometime in the future. Any one of those three things can mean the end of, of life, right? You know, violence or, uh, you know, climate change uh, or this pandemic. And, you know, to deal with one at a time would be <laughs> maybe bearable, maybe two really pushing it. Three, um, yeah, it's a wonder that we're all not like depressed, right, in this moment. And who knows how it scrambled our genes, right, and what we're passing on to the next generation. Who knows? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, the crises we're facing at this moment are far bigger than a triangle. But those three things, you're right, are just so intense in terms of the necessity to act now, in terms of the way that they seem that that various matters. I, I'm not trying to dance around any points right now. I'm just talking, I'm thinking at the 30,000 foot level, mm -hmm. every one of these issues, which is a crisis is, is kind of galvanizing mm -hmm. communities who are making decisions from their armchair. Mm -hmm. Well, and they're problems that relate directly to the individual, right? They're not these political, these issues that say happen, um, you know, to other people elsewhere. All three of those require like direct change of behavior from us um, at this level. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of avoiding the word genre, <laughs> but I did want to ask you a question and I will also note that, you know, you very graciously agreed to do a reading today. So I'm excited about that as well. And anytime you feel it's an appropriate time is, is great. Sure. Um, but avoiding the word genre, <laughs> but, but recognizing that word problems, you know, is, is poetry and poetics and narrative and anti-narrative and sort of all a, a whole bunch of different kinds of expressive forces happening simultaneously, which, mm. which is really powerful. I, I almost felt and correct me if, if I'm totally misreading things, I really did feel like there were some incredibly strong connection points with disorientation, mm. you know, which may be read. I mean, it certainly got its poetic uh, language, but more of a series of essays, right? Mm -hmm. Prose prose delivery with a little bit of uh, trickster work happening in the book as well. <laughs> but I sort of read them as companion pieces with one another, mm -hmm. as, as a balancing act between what does it mean to say the impossible, the painful, the traumatizing thing. Mm -hmm. But also, what does it mean to create a space where people are brought into these dynamics mm -hmm. without resolution? And I, I felt that the books are a mirror mm -hmm. and confrontation for anybody, a calling in, but also mm -hmm. confrontation for people to address, you mm -hmm. know, racism, 
and anti-racism and white supremacy and structural mm -hmm. violence. But I don't know, can you, are they companion texts? Yeah, a really, really excellent observation here. So I actually think about my career as a series of pairs, right? So my first book, You Know Who You Are, a poetry collection followed by Not Anyone's Anything, right? Almost a question and an answer there. You know who you are? You're not anyone's anything. And uh, the second pair, I would say personals, followed by reproduction, right? The search for connection and, and relationship. And then once in there, what can enemies produce if just reproductions, right? And then this final pair that you're identifying here, uh, word problems and disorientation. Uh, there are kind of strands of like race working their way through the whole thing, but also this question between, yeah, I think avoidance and confrontation, or more gently, I think, how could something be dealt with implicitly and then explicitly, right? Um, so turning inward and then turning outward, what's my personal feeling and, and responsibility? And then what's my public feeling and responsibility? And those two things aren't always congruous. And it would be great to be totally integrated as a person and to have all uh, sort of parts of your life, public, private, be congruent or just kind of map onto each other. But in fact, when you're forced to live in like multiple realities and your body expresses different things to people, and so you keep getting scripted um, over the course of your life, dissonance is just um, your natural music, right? You don't sort of operate in a tonal universe. Everything is atonal. And so uh, I think the last two books are dealing with that relationship between sort of public and private uh, through through race as well. And I think the other kind of thing that's happening with these pairs is uh, sort of the first, the first attempt at the thing that I'm trying to understand is poetic, right? It goes, you know who you are, uh, then personals, and then word problems, right? It's always the core of it is in poetry. And then the expansion of it happens in some kind of prose form uh, afterwards. So yeah, it's kind of neat, like, to both concentrate and expand. Um, and I'm really kind of curious about your, uh, your the issue you take with with the word genre here. Is it because genre forces scripts and, and it prescribes, prescribes behavior? Or is it just not very useful for you? Oh, I, I'm not afraid of the word genre. It's, no. it's, it's that notion of, you know, and, and myself, you know, as a senior PhD candidate, I, most of my teaching assistant gigs have always been creative writing. Mm. It's this idea that it can, it can feel sticky when we, when we're working with, you know, folks who are new to creative writing and trying to hammer in ideas of categorical boxes that define right. and limit Right. You know, but, but the argument to that is like, well, if students learn the skills, then they can also hone the craft and then break the rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right. And so why even set up the situation where the rules need to be broken, right? Why not promise people freedom from the beginning instead of transgression as a means to freedom? I can see, uh, I can see uh, the logic there. Yeah. And this sense too, that uh, genre teaches good behavior, right? And teaches complacency and comportment and teaches obedience. And in some ways, it's a way of like constraining uh, the wildness of creativity. So yeah, I mean, genre has always been <laughs> uh, a suggestion to me, right? I take it as a suggestion more than a rule. <laughs> and so I move between them fluidly, you know, fluidly. And, you know, even when I, the way I use language in my personal life, like people who know me like intimately know this, like I will begin a sentence in English and then switch to French and then go to Spanish and then put in like a bit of kanji at the end and stuff, right? Like I just 
you just move even like between languages very loosely and, and disrespectfully. And there are tons of like errors that abound. I'm not interested really in being correct unless it's not in these personal kinds of communications, right? I'm just interested in getting, you know, like a Chagall-like impression out on <laughs> in my text or my messages, right? These blotches of color and these dream impressions and those kinds of things rather than correctness. And I think genre can can constrain people if they take it as a rule rather than a, than a suggestion. And even language itself, right? Even just using English can do that, right? Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. That's so wonderfully stated. I, I've, I've worked with folks in the past where I try to try to help, you know, people who are perhaps new to nonlinear or linear um, narratives who may first encounter something meta or an anti-narrative or something to that effect and trying to encourage people to think about it as a, as a, a navigational exercise of selfhood hmm. when, when encountering a text that is a little bit defiant or, or just non-traditional in terms of what they've expected you know, mm-hmm. to open, open the pages with it. I think about books like, um, you know, Amnor Bessie Phillips' Song or Jordan Abel's Engine right. and te- texts that really challenge people to think about what it means to abandon the fact that your book should be read vertically. <laughs> right. right. You know? I'm always interested in that, right? <laughs> I'm always interested in like how many assumptions already like constrain the reader, right? The writer for sure, but the reader too, like approaches the book like sequentially. Uh, and so in word problems, I like a reader to sort of open a page and say, okay, what do I do with this? Right. And do I read that tiny, that poem that goes across all that cuts through a number of poems. Do I read that all at once? Or do I read the poem and try to sort of uh, bounce back and forth? What are the limits of my attention, right? And also, what are the possibilities of the page too? So on on both of those things, I think there's a really like fertile ground for creating. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like this, the sense of defiance, right? That really experimental or original work defies uh, the status quo. When in fact, I think that's one way of looking at it, but I I always feel less intent on defying and more interested in expressing my freedom, right? (laughs) And my freedom is not in oppositions to something else. My freedom is always a a precondition and free (laughs) from the beginning, right? And so, yeah, it it flies above fences, I think. I'd like to read a quote from Mm -hmm. More Than Half of Americans Can't Swim from Disorientation, I'm very aware that we may have listeners in this podcast who find it dizzying for me to switch between one text and another, but because they could be, you know, considered couplets or, you know, companion texts, I was wondering in, in, in what ways, if you could, if you could expand a little bit on this idea of disorientation and perhaps how it actually corresponds with word problems. Because when I read this passage from more than half of Americans can't swim, I see incredibly strong linkages between both texts. So you write, when you position yourself in history, you enter into a community of people with similar experiences and you observe how the racial climate changes over time. For white people, it's worth learning some history and theory and more. It's worth having experiences of disorientation and discomfort as a means of empathy and as a way of accessing courage, which only grows from challenge and exercise. And so I was so drawn to that idea of discomfort and not to attach discomfort to the word I used earlier, which was defiance. You know, you were talking about freedom of expression, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit around, you know, that idea and how maybe both these texts engage with that either similarly or differently or um, with a synergy between them. I I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much of our resources, you know, we expend trying to remain comfortable, right? Um, I have a friend who recently said, you know, I don't like the summer, I don't like to be hot, I don't like the winter, I don't like to be cold, right? He's got this perfect like homeostatic um, zone that he wants to be in. Um, and I think like emotionally, we we try to sort of keep in the state, right? That's free of discomfort, which means, you know, also like free of injury. And I actually think that our psychic life doesn't have to veer solely towards pleasure and solely towards like comfort, satisfaction, happiness, fun, those kinds of things, right? Sort of uh, positively uh, like valenced affect. But I think there's a texture too, to some of these other emotions that will mature us, right? So it's not simply about, you know, like a different texture of food or something like that, which also like points to pleasure, like this is really salty, and it gives me a specific kind of pleasure. But I think some of those emotions like discomfort are important for maturity, because they take us outside of our own desires and our own preferences towards the experiences of other people. So my discomfort perhaps resembles or is perhaps uh, very neutral for somebody else, right? Like that is the environment that that person lives in, what I consider discomfort. And so my sensitivity then becomes a kind of privilege that other people can't quite have. So, I mean, things like that, I think are important to kind of work out. So instead of like avoiding going to a really like challenging place to be, right? Like, you know, a place where, uh, or far simpler than that, like, you know, riding the bus through an area, um, instead of choosing that, avoiding that route, I say, choose that route, right? Choose that route and stay awake. Don't like zone out with the headphones and um, the devices and all of that but actually remain alive to the world and eyes open and ears open to it and touch that discomfort and say, what is it about my upbringing and my being in the world that is making me uncomfortable in this moment when so many other people are living through this, right? Yeah. And what is it about this issue of race um, that causes me so much agitation? What is it I'm afraid of that will happen to me? Uh, What is unsafe about this? Yeah. And to actually like look at those things, not, not avoid them incredibly poetic which is a really it's just a fabulous conduit between these two texts in terms of how they speak to to everything that you just shared Mm -hmm. maybe i could read a little bit like an uncomfortable situation right for sure uh uh, that would be wonderful yeah okay let me find it okay so these are two experiences here from disorientation it's in the disorientation chapter I have no way of conducting the study, but I suspect that most black people have been called at some point in their lives. And the N word is blacked out right throughout the text. I'll just say that because you can't see the page. Most recently, well, not most recently anymore, but at the time in Colorado, I was called by a homeless man because I didn't give him money. I remember the 7-Eleven clearly, the corner, the direction I I was walking, like the scene of an accident. Years before I went to a conference in San Antonio There must have been a biker convention in town at the same time because I saw many large white men wearing altogether too much black leather in the lobby. After checking in, I entered an elevator with two such men. The doors closed and they continued a story about something. I don't remember what. I only remember that Nut was thrown around altogether too much by one man. The other man's job was mostly to snicker. They were at the back. I was facing the door with my luggage, counting the floors. It couldn't have been a long time. At my floor, the doors opened and I got out. 
they continued their ascent. On that same trip to San Antonio, when I was walking from my hotel to the conference venue, a similar thing happened. Behind me were two men, again, talking about some that I hoped wasn't me. No matter how I adjusted my gait, they seemed neither to speed up and pass nor to drop back and fall out of earshot. I remember there was a chain fence on my left, like for construction and traffic on my right, and of course the men behind me. The only way I could escape was by moving forward. I definitely couldn't even look back to acknowledge them or to investigate. I think I turned a corner as soon as I could, taking myself off route. I remember the feeling as if I was suddenly in a dream of being pursued by two men and the word n which was not intended for me any more than a stray bullet is intended for its victim. Now, on the surface, it seems like nothing big happened in San Antonio. If I told the story to a white friend, they'd acknowledge it, then brush it away with, what a bunch of racist idiots. And that would be that. They weren't speaking to you. But my Black friends can extract from these incidents degrees of violence, that the words were intended to be overheard by me, that I was no match for the two men if I dared protest, that the men in the elevator had seen me punch in my floor number and turn in the direction of my room. Black people know that in a strange town where you need to buy meals and move around alone, you begin to question your right to take up space, that your vigilance increases, that you should probably call someone back home and tell them what happened just in case. And they understand too, that you have a conference paper to give the next day in a room where you're likely to be the only black person. Your obligations to the world don't stop despite its hostility to you. Thank you. That's, that, was, that, was, um, that was really beautiful. I mean, important, necessary, um, crucial, to listen to, to share. But why not beautiful, Paul, right? This is the thing too, right? Where when we get to nonfiction, suddenly we erase like any kind of artistic, uh, and I know this isn't what you're doing, right? I'm just kind of like, you know, <laughs> um, uh, using you, okay? Forgive me. Um, but when we come to nonfiction, we somehow think like the content reigns above the telling of it, right? That, you know, nonfiction can be beautiful, even if it is unpleasant, right? And we're back to that word, like discomfort it can be uncomfortable and beautiful at the same time yeah yeah no uh, absolutely i i think what i'm what i'm so moved by is the ascendancy of the elevator and the way that works even metonymically with mm. with what you're exploring or the claustrophobia of an open space on the street based mm. on proximities right and right. there's there's such an incredibly charged electrical current that runs through those images. And yet the way you convey them is so stark and vulnerable and honest that there is a real beauty in that power of sharing. I just, you know, there are moments of receiving the story of someone who's being vulnerable. There are moments of listening. And then there are moments where such imagery can be so strong and charged and powerful and moving that of course I would reach for the word beautiful, but but as you say, it's beautiful in concert with discomfort, mm -hmm. uh, even rage, mm -hmm. um, and that those things exist simultaneously in the writing, which is really it speaks to the power of your work. Thank you. Well clarified there. Yeah, yeah. yeah we could talk about beauty for hours, right? <laughs> it's for another day, another time. Yeah. Um. Actually, I would like to ask you a question about vulnerability. Uh -huh. um, I know I gave you a heads up about this already uh, uh -huh. earlier before our interview, 
I am going to ask this question about, so I had the, the privilege of listening to you read when you were here in, in the city of Calgary and with the University of Calgary for the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program, 2014, 2015. It was so lovely to meet you back then. It was a and, great year. That was actually one of the most productive years of my life. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Um, I had the opportunity to, you know, to meet with you and to share work with you, but also to attend your Hello Goodbye event um, with the CDWP and Nick, Nick Thran was the, the poet coming in and you were the poet saying goodbye. Um, but you read work at that reading where you shared a little bit of backstory around personal grief. And then the poem appears in word problems. I don't need to name it unless you want to. But one of the things that I was so interested in when I encountered your work again in the sort of next phase, years later, right, was to sort of think a little bit about what it means for writers to be so vulnerable and to share, but also not necessarily give it all away, right? Like the need to draw boundaries because there's a certain amount of bloodletting that happens when you're bearing witness to things or when you're sharing grief or, or, or pieces that are so intimate and personal and hard to work through. And this is something that I've been trying to work through as a writer for many years mm-hmm. is how to say the thing without a being evasive, or 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 B being disingenuous or or C maybe just bluntly traumatic for for gratuity. And so as I was reading through so many of the, the stories that you've shared through word problems and through disorientation, there's so much vulnerability in these texts. But I felt like when I encountered this one piece that I heard you read at Hello Goodbye, I was aware of the backstory and I was intrigued by the way the poem touches on exactly what occurred. Mm-hmm. But without readers who've encountered this text who haven't heard you speak about it before would even know necessarily greater context. Right. And so I have a question for you around, um, you know, how do you balance vulnerability with with some degree of protection or self-care over what you will or will not share? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like avoidance and evasiveness and all of those things are, you know, um, attempts at self-care, just like, you know, there are various kinds of defense mechanisms that step in when some kind of psychic trauma looms. I think part of our job, like when we're writing, maybe let me approach it this way, Paul. I I, I think that one of the great tricks or deceptions even in the writing process is this sense that you write alone and that as you are writing, you think that, hey, I can be as frank and as honest with myself because this is just me. And then, you know, a few months or a few years later, suddenly, like everybody is, <laughs> everybody knows exactly what, what was there. Um, and, you know, not to be naive, I mean, a lot of people write for publication. But I'm talking in those sort of earnest moments where you don't really care about publication. You're just really interested in like making something. Um, And so in that privacy where your audience is limited to you, and there's a kind of sense that nobody really cares deeply about this and the world is going to go on without this work, that really encourages the honesty to share and, you know, to be as as vulnerable uh, as you need to be in the work. And there are various layers, right? Like, I mean, in poetry, and there's the speaker that we made such a hard and fast rule in the mid 20th century about, you know, identify, separate the speaker from the poet, right, to give ourselves again, another kind of protection. And then in fiction, narrators and points of view and all of these distancing kinds of things. And well, in nonfiction, it collapses, right? Like you, (laughs) there's that. And in poetry, to some degree, I think, you know, there's a a bit of that collapse. Yeah, I don't think I'm actually particularly very good at at self-care or 
protecting myself. I mean, what tends to happen is I think I'm pretty good at self repair <laughs> instead. And maybe there are strategies that one could do in advance instead of constantly the rebuild. I just don't know how to write good work or how to write work that matters to me, like without the risk of, of total exposure. Right. And, you know, when I, any kind of formal thing I do is not to obfuscate or not to hide, right. There's not um, no veil there that I'm trying to do. All of that is also part of this kind of vulnerable project, right? So I'm trying all of these, these forms and these shapes and these things with the expectation that someone would say that that is not how you behave. That is not how you think. That is not the right way to sort of proceed through um, a poem. This is not lyric in the, the way we know lyric to be. And, and so like vulnerability is not just a content issue. Vulnerability is putting forward how your mind operates. And some person saying that's unintelligible, right? Or that is flowery or whatever your particular cast of mind, whatever criticism, uh, you know, is, uh, gets yielded from that. So yeah, it, it takes many different kinds of forms. But you know, there have been readings afterwards where I've gone back to my hotel room and like turned on whatever trash was on the hotel TV and like just crashed out, right? And yeah, you do feel like a bit of a spectacle or whatever. But to do it again, maybe I wouldn't read the poem in public, right? The one you're talking about, fine. But there's some other poems that I don't read in public, but I would still write them. I'm so glad that you shared that. I produced some work um, a couple of years ago that I felt needed to be written. They were dealing with my partner and and just mental health and and you know well-being. And um, I had the blessing to do a bunch of writing on somebody else's struggles, uh, my partner. And it was a very vulnerable project because it was about being the support to someone else who who's going through something very different than than you yourself can know. Right. Um, so it was about creating space between two people to try to understand the human dynamic that goes on there when there's nothing but love, but it's also kind of a haunted space. And I ended up doing a number of performances live mm. and the first one hurt. And what I didn't realize was that every performance would hurt more. And my right. partner never came to one of them. I mm. had the blessing to do the project and the whole project was written with my partner's blessing, but then touring it around yeah. was, was too raw. Right. And it took a long time to recover from that, constantly reading these pieces that were mired in in grief, actually. Right. Uh, grief and love, simultaneous. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah, so I learned my threshold. And right. Then, uh, yeah. Yeah, there are several separate enterprises, right? The writing of something and then the kind of publication or the publicity of something, right? The, the touring around, as you put it. And we don't want to confuse the demands of one with the other, right? Writing has its demands. And then the demands of being a public person and, and sharing these things is another skill set, right? That, you know, uh, you know, creative writing programs don't teach people to deal with. But also what's neat about what you said there, but your, your partner and the thing that you wrote is something that I think is like super important, which is to, uh, you know, differentiate between character, which for so long has been the central thing in like literary fiction, right? good, believable characters and flawed characters. It's it's a bit of a cliche now. And I think beyond that, I, I, I think the writing that I want to do and, and read is the type that's more interested in relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So relation between character rather than character as a single embodied, unified kind of presence. But what is that energy that passes between 
people and characters, right? Because in that kind of, in that electricity are, you know, the relations between self and society, right? Like if literature is to do something uh, meaningful in the world or, you know, you know, like is literature like an activist arm and all of that, I think we have to reframe the centrality of character and think more about um, the centrality of relation. Actually, I I have a, a fabulous anecdote to build to build on relation and what i'm going to do is connect this to rings and your, okay. your circle poems i promise they're relevant <laughs> <laughs> even if they're not i want to hear them. i don't want to be tangential so i so you're you're in calgary it's 2014-15 i met with you through the cdwp's fabulous program and i brought you all these constraint-based sound poems you were so gracious ian you met with me and you sat down and you said okay well i worked through your conceptualism I worked through your puzzles and and I said yeah I'm doing all these puzzles aren't they great and you said yeah it looks like you are having lots of fun (laughs) (laughs) you didn't say it exactly like that but you're like I can see what you're doing and I was like cool pat on the back but one of the things that you asked me was okay but what is the return for the reader Mm. and that stayed with me so I just want you to know Mm. I'm incredibly grateful because six seven years later your words really meant a lot to me and I held them very dear to my heart. And what is the return for the reader? And not just who is the writing for, because I think that's a false question. Mm. I mean, it's a relevant thing to factor in, but also, you know, don't want to dwell on that. But I had never really thought about that in such an intimate way. And when I discovered, well, I mean, I've got word problems right here, but anyone who just even right off the cover, you know, Mm. sees black words, white words, the intermingling of them, the way that you've worked them in with one another, the the, the rings kind of overlap. I, I'm just describing it in case someone's listening and hasn't read it yet. But even the way that words overlaps in the middle as sort of like a disorienting mixture of W-O-R-D-S. Mm. And then I was instantly, you know, thrown back to, to poem number one from personals back 2012 right and so and your anniversary to that book (laughs) um and poem number one rings right right and in the first circle poem in rings you write the problem is we don't know who the problem is we don't know who the problem is we don't know who and then here you know these years later we've got the sort of the interconnectedness of black words and white words and the sort of inseparable politically charged, racially charged dynamic. And I'm wondering if if you view these poems, this is my anecdote. When you asked me way back then, what is the return for the reader? I view your circles and the circularity of them as a return and not just between books as a conversation between texts, even if they're very different texts, but that, that idea of getting lost in the spiral of the never ending question. Right. It's so powerful. And I, I very much connect that to this idea of, of relationship and working through the labor mm-hmm. without a clean and tidy ending. Right, right, right. <laughs> All again, beautiful. We're going to keep bringing, come back to that word there. Yeah. Oh, I don't even know where to start with this, Paul. Yeah. So with rings, how about with word problems? Okay. Let's start with the recent one. So the the challenge there is how do we talk about our ethical problems or find solutions to ethical problems uh, when our culture is dominated by like a really scientific or logical framework, right? For resolving things. And so a lot of these problems are couched in these kind of math problem language. And we find that a resolution is not quite possible. 
right? But we can have a kind of analysis of the situation. Like the situation is pretty like apparent and visible, but the answer is not quite, it's not called word answers, you know? Yeah. Um, and partly uh, called word problems too, because I thought maybe these are not ethical problems. These are in fact problems of language, right? The terms that we want to be addressed by, the shifting terms across racist and racial uh, racialized discourse and gender and sexuality discourse, right? The terms that keep shifting. And so if it's a problem of language, then maybe we can use our grammar, right? The engine that kind of uh, manages language to find ways through them. And of course, that's not not quite fruitful either, right? Like no single apparatus or epistemology is going to be appropriate for it. We can't use logic and math. We can't use like language and grammar and sort of, you know, mid-century or late mid-century like structuralism and stuff. We can't, um, uh, it's sociologically, it's just too messy, right? To kind of handle. So it's impossible to kind uh, to contain the problem. And yeah, in rings, we see that on a domestic level, right? Like the couple and conception and all of that. And here we see it on a, on a bigger, bigger level. Yeah. I'm so not trying to conflate different circular poems. It's just, I'm so, maybe, maybe your very sage words to me have mm. haunted me in a way for all these years. What's the payoff? <laughs> what, what, you know, why I come back to it. And right. in many ways, I was like, Ooh, Ian cracked the code. It's the circle. <laughs> the circle is the code. <laughs> You just never get out of it, right? Forget about coming back. You just you never leave it. We, it is a bit of a prison, right? <laughs> and I mean, there's there's a difference too between sort of like growing, right? And evolving and changing and moving forward. And that's the difficulty of that long poem across uh, in, uh, in word problems, right? It's possible to move on without moving, to move forward without moving on, right? That kind of sense you could move through time and space, but really still caught in a loop. And that poem is structured linearly, but you, the repetitions just keep you from progressing, right? Suppose you're a Black man who's supposed to be white. Suppose you are supposed, right? And and you really don't quite move forward. You just kind of rev your engines. But it does ask a pretty powerful uh, series of questions towards the end. Actually, uh, on that point, and I'm glad that you brought that up, because the secondary long poem in Word Problems, it is possible to go back without going away. One of the 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 feelings I have to go on feeling here mm. um when I was reading through these works for today I get the word problems to me really really stands out as like it feels like a symphony mm. oh wow and there's so much music reference also word problems but also in disorientation mm. but one of the things that I was so compelled by especially in word problems is the way that it is possible to move on without moving forward begins in a sparse kind of way where it feels like a standalone piece and then is slowly interwoven into the other poems throughout the text. Mm -hmm. And then you have in quite a, an, a, a fabulous cross dialogic way provided the answer key on the back. <laughs> but of okay. course, poem two, it is possible to go back without going away. The answer key says, you know, turn 90 degrees. And sure enough, the reader discovers that now we're reading, you know, on a perpendicular 90 degree axis with the long poem on in the margin on the side and then everything else, you know, right side up. And, and for me, you, I mean, you've got images of the music, you've got, you know, you've got the, um, the shared phonetic sounds of you singing along with Elvis. <laughs> right. And I felt, I felt that if we go back to a comment that I was exploring with you earlier around this idea of where problems be having its own form of disorientation, I felt like this book, um, Word Problems, begins 
like a symphony where where the instruments start to swell and then start to intersperse with other poetic form. And I'm wondering if you had that kind of a macro structure, a musicality in mind. And I don't necessarily mean at just the level of the language as you read it, but is it a piece of music? Love that, right? To think about it symphonically, right? From book one, I have been sort of talking about myself as like polyphonic, right? But not symphonic. I think this is kind of neat. So you've given me something to think about after <laughs> after we talk today, right? While I'm making soup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like sort of big structures are really important to me, right? You can see that probably best, I think, in like reproduction. But these big structures are important. But what I wanted those two poems to do, right? The um, the long poems that cut across is to both be a part of a society and to be a separate from it, right? So the second one that occurs like in the margin, in fact, you know, it's on the page technically, but it's off-centered and the text is also grayed out, right? For these two long poems. And that although the poems uh, ostensibly are sort of about this kind of progress narrative moving on and moving forward and how much do we look back to the past and can you know not going away and things like that they're also about like simultaneity and coexisting right spatially as opposed to temporally so where am i located in relation to the meat where am i located in relation to the the main poem and in some ways i prevent people from getting to the main poem by slicing between the title and the body right that is I am integral. You cannot avoid me. I'm not in the margins. I might be grayed out, but you must at least step over my dead body, right? To get to the main poem. And in the other ones, I'm in the margin, but you can't turn the page. You yourself can't move on without um, acknowledging this grayed out text at the side. Yeah. So disorienting in, in some ways, but also asking us to like, you know, like it's, it's an argument at the level of the experience of reading print, right? It's not just an argument. It's not only an argument about race relations and, and society and all of that. It's also about the experience of moving through space and time with me. Yeah. Uh, I, I I also feel like, Ian, you do such a eloquent job of bringing incredibly dynamic people and stories from all walks of life without over-signifying what makes humans unique in a very intersectional way. It doesn't feel like anyone's identities are being co-opted for a political agenda. Yeah, I can't do it. No, it feels like humans are inherently complicated, multifaceted, intersectional, and diverse. Mm. And so there's a there's almost an omnipresent sense of embrace around women and queerness Good. and um, blackness. Right. And BIPOC communities, you challenge ideas of chronology, space, and time and allyship with indigenous ways of knowing. And it all feels so seamlessly woven into a really beautiful mosaic of what it means to recognize everything outside of what CTV has to say about the way the world works. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for Paul for, for summarizing it that way. Thanks for it. Right. To be, this is a bit like relations and plurality and all of that and to not speak for people or on behalf of people and all of that, but still not to erase them, you know, not to keep reinforcing this certain kind of mind that we see in art, in literature, but to have other people in there, to have everybody in there. Yeah, I, I don't have a big checklist where I go down and say, oh, here's my black female character. Here's, you know, my Asian male character and all of that. But again, it's that sense of like, if you're alive to the world and you're alive to how, 
I just had this this voice in my head saying, Ian, you're so dead to the world sometimes though, right? You, you know, and I mean, <laughs> sometimes a lot of that world is not external, right? But it's like imaginative. And so like conceptual is a world and it's not just the physical world out there, but alive to the landscape of like human emotion and feeling and being, right? Um, and marginalization and all of that. Yeah. And then I think it will show in your work, right? You can't fake, you can't falsify or fake certain things. Readers are not stupid, right? Readers are um, intelligent people. They know when people are doing things or um, mm -hmm. like virtue signaling and all of that stuff. And that's, I think it's not going to last, right? In 50 years or so, it's just going to seem more and more false as we get further and further from our present time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if I can ask you a question about the image of the child mm. and not to be overly personal, because if you don't want to be, I don't want to put you on the spot with this question. Sure. Um, I know that you speak in, in your work to, you know, hate speech and harms, you know, perpetuated on family and, and, and really horrible stories of, of what people have gone through. But in both texts, especially with word problems where you sort of say, white supremacy is attacking while we're young, right? I mean, not to say that's the foundation of the text, but you come at it from the angle of like, at what point do people become codified in these things? And then you share a lot of information around your own youth, your own growing up uh, family members in disorientation. And I'm wondering what the, what does the image of the child say to you in terms of being an organizing principle for these books? Mm -hmm. Oh, so, so good. Yeah. And we see like from reproduction, like oh, we see it in rings, right? The desire to have a child and not being able and all of that. Right. But you know, the child is uh, sort of held as this symbol of like innocence, right? And in fact, I don't think it's that simple, right? I think children are like complicated and willful and not all of that, but it seems like a location where we are willing to, for the benefit of the child, do things that we ordinarily would not be willing to do, right? And have conversations for the benefit of, of the future or the next generation and all of that. And if that is the only space in our society that is still like sacred and reverential and able to face big moral challenges and ethical challenges and all of that, then I think that's where some of our conversation has to happen, right? There's a poem, uh, the last poem in Word Problems that talks about a mother and her young child at Liberty Cafe trying to play I spy with all the things that are black, right? And I think we listen differently when there's a child in the room. I know like uh, Aretha Van Herc at, at uh, Calgary there says, you know, don't put babies in your stories, right? Because once the baby is in there, everybody's attention is on that baby, right? It's on that child in the story. Just forget about everything else you've done to that point. And I think that could actually be leverage, right? She means we know what she means by that, right? But you can leverage that because if people are attentive to you, because certain, certain, you know, members of our society are deemed valuable enough to more valuable than we are, right? Regardless of our, uh, you know, gender or race or, or anything like that, more valuable then you know, I think that space has to be kind of be deployed and to realize too, that that space is already being occupied. So when we say, when I say things about like white supremacy and uh, my niece being called the N-word and all of those things in, in disorientation, and what's that moment where we learn that we are um, into various categories. I'm not the one bringing this up. I'm the one pointing out something that's already happening, right, to this this group of people that we believe to be innocent and free of like grown up people's issues. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the the battle is already there. 
Um, just like like consumers' attitudes are already being launched at, at kids who are defenseless against it, right? So yeah, we can't pretend like that's not there. Yeah, I actually had a question about the cafe poem that you've raised in relation to this question around childhood and children. And I wasn't, I mean, maybe I'm just, I'm being a geek here, but I was wondering if your final poem in word problems set in the cafe with the child playing I spy was intended as a, almost um, a parallel with your last piece in disorientation, where you discuss your mother's struggles with having to constantly renew documentation to prove that she's actually still alive for her pension mm. because there's an intimate you know there's an intimacy in the child figure of, of you caring for your mother mm. in that moment and I found it so powerful that both texts end on this parent child figure but they're totally different scenarios and they're charged in different ways that's a great observation not not deliberate right like not not conscious at least, but a really, really great observation. These tiny, tiny pieces, right, at the end of both books in, uh, you know, the kind of mother-child mode, right, um, at, at different different places and for different purposes too. It's pretty neat. I love when these things that are not conscious, when it shows like your unconscious is actually pretty healthy and not just a, a cesspool of like unfulfilled desires, right? But it actually like <laughs> can sort of hold has a long memory and can sort of organize things and create a kind of coherence. That's that's a really great observation, Paul. So not yeah. deliberate, but beautiful. Not deliberate, not deliberate but I'll, I'll say beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a wonderful compliment, complementarity between them. It's just the, the sense of balance is so mm. um, th- there's, there's a real call to move between texts and in part, you know, a book like Word Problems instigates that, you know, a dialogue. But it's really just incredible reading a book that that calls back, you know, these politics are not resolved. <laughs> these politics are embodied, they're lived, they're real, they're present, they're now, you, you will face this. Mm-hmm. And, and not you will face this, but you know what I mean? You, the reader, need to recognize that this is mm-hmm. here and it's now, but that those are taken up in different kinds of form, different kinds of poetics, different kinds of confrontation, different kinds of sharing, even different vocabulary and syntax and language and tone. And there's a playfulness to that, but it's also so gripping in how it pulls the reader in as well. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Paul. (laughs) Thank you. I wish you could like string all of these together and just graduate, right? (laughs) Here's my dissertation. (laughs) You made just a bunch of really beautiful observations. uh, Yeah. And comments really, really good. Well thought out. I would like to ask you another, you know, a question we kind of began with this, but what has it been like for someone who wears so many hats, teacher, writer, I don't know, you're just, you've you've done a lot, Ian, (laughs) you've been doing a lot and the pandemic is so overwhelming and I'm wondering what it's been like for you in terms of connection to community, whether it's writerly communities or whether it's the student community or, you know, working at your university. I mean, what has it been like for you working through some of these things that you're putting out in the world while also trying to be a citizen of this world in such challenging times? Yeah, I I mean, this this point in time hit me right around like my early 40s here, right? And so naturally, there's a bit of like midlife shift that's that's happening right now. And I recognize it. It's it's really quite bizarre. And nobody sort of prepared me for this, right? Like, I find myself like, unpredictably in like, super 
emotional over just phrases or or little things. And then the next minute listening to like Doja Cat and saying, this is the best thing ever. Like it's, <laughs> I, I seem to be like all over, over the map. And I think what's happening is like a reevaluation of like relations now. And if we're all going to go forward seeing each other as these kinds of like obstacles to avoid and to be untouched by and to remain autonomous and pure and clean. And so that kind of cleanliness narrative comes to dominate the next couple of decades or something. Then I feel kind of like I'm pre-grieving something that hasn't quite happened necessarily. So yeah, it's just been a weird moment. And I don't know if I'm in a great place <laughs> right now internally. Uh, I mean, I can always keep going as that long poem says, right? Keep going and moving forward, but not sure just how healthy. Yeah. I wish I could give you like a super cheerful answer about, you know, we're going to super connect to all my communities and we're going to get through this together and we're strong and, and all of that. But I don't know. I don't know. I think we're going to be alone for some time, right? In our little pods and to watch other people that you care about decline and move more inward and stuff. It's been a really hard time, really hard time. Yeah. And you know, I think part of like this cleanliness narrative, I don't, that's not a term. Okay. That's just something I'm, I'm making up now is this kind of purging narrative that's happening too, where we see certain people becoming more and more invisible, like older people who are, you know, very vulnerable with COVID and stuff, just kind of disappearing from public life. You just don't see them walking through malls and you, you don't see them. And so, yeah, this purging and towards cleanliness and self-protection and all of that, it's, it's giving me pause. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, Paul. I don't know. Okay. I wanted to ask. Mm. what is next for ian williams after, <laughs> after disorientation oh well i'm going back to the novel right starting uh january that should be done soon right and that's disappointment the novel that one it's probably going to change title actually but let's see and there's another project that i'm working on that i'm really excited about that's not writing and it does deal with community and it does take us beyond the familiar. And I think a lot of people will benefit from it. Um, and that's as much as I can say. And it feels like a real sort of, it feels as good as writing a book or a poem, although, you know, it does, it's not the same product that comes out of it. It's my attachment to it. it's just going to disappear completely, but it will make a lot of people happy and do good work in the world for a lot of people and help other people do good work in the world. And so I'm excited about that. That's my plan for 2022. That sounds like an amazing plan. And I think a world with more Ian Williams is just a better world that we all can benefit from. <laughs> Bless me, more other people is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you sincerely for taking the time out of your day to meet with us for our Tea House Talks podcast. It's been an absolute honor, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Ian Williams by Paul Monnier. I am Mahmoud Ababne, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Art and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stucco at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larry Salai, Paul Monnier, Shuyun Yu, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, and me.
Thanks for listening.